So, uh, actually just yesterday, over the 24 hours from Friday to Saturday, my family, or Kate and I, my wife, today's our 12th anniversary, by the way. Yeah. That's, there we go. Um, And we went to a parenting conference. We have three little kids um, with a couple of other families from the commons. And it was, it was great. We had trooper community friends who were willing to step in and watch our kids while we went away. It was amazing. It was a breath of fresh air for us. But when we were there at the conference, um, it was so encouraging because parenting is a funny thing. You're taking a small human being and keeping them alive enough can feel daunting. But making them, shaping them into a healthy human being can seem impossible at times. Like you have this, this like last week I talked about the spinning clay. It's like that's what actually having a little child is like. You're spinning clay, you're forming them, you're molding them, you're shaping them. And at the same time, you realize they're also broken. And we're broken. We got to hear tons of wisdom, parenting fail stories and hilarious kid stories. Um, the least of which was not... The, the, the tantrum stories, the, the kids throwing an erratic tantrum, every parent has seen it. Chances are you have seen plenty of tantrums out in public, um, so much so that they're, they're irrational enough that we can, we can laugh at them unless they're our own kids, right? It's, it's the child throwing themselves down because you're getting the generic cereal rather than the one that has Captain Crunch on it, right? I need it, I need it. It's, it's the, the candy that, that they want after dinner. It's the <laughs> having more time at the park. It's more video game time. It's another round on the carnival ride in the mall. No joke, they showed us a video of one of their, their nieces who is on one of those little like carnival horses in the middle of the mall, you know? You put in a quarter and it just goes like this. And then when it stopped, they didn't put another quarter in. She goes, another ride. And then the, the filmer, presumably the mother, said, we don't have any more money. Instantly, the tension had built. Ah, I need more money, I need to go on another ride. Ah, it just starts like melting in the horse chair, in the chair. It's, tantrums are funny to us because they're so irrational, right? It's not a genuine need that the kid has. Like that would be a scary situation if a parent was actually denying a child of what their, their real needs are. It's kind of a synthetic need. They feel like they need it so badly, or feel like they desire it so badly, they interpret it as a need. We understand that to a child, their internal sense of what they desire so much isn't actually a need, but might actually be something even destructive to them. My beautiful little two-year-old girl, Adelaide, loves to sit on my lap in our car and flip the switches and turn the steering wheel, and it's cute until I turn the car on and the windshield wiper blades go like this, and the lights come on and the hazards start flashing and the window rolls down, right? It's kind of cute, and the, the smile on their face is so worth it. It can be a loving thing to allow them to fulfill those little desires, but what if when I'm driving down the freeway, she demanded to sit in my lap while I was driving? That same desire gets really dangerous then, right? And until Tesla has like a baby-proof self-driving mode, I'm pretty sure it's gonna remain that way. Authority over us and community around us helps us distinguish the difference between a desire that can be destructive 
and a genuine need, or maybe just a desire that we have the freedom to pursue. The reason that most of us, maybe it's been a long time since we've helped a, an adult figure out the difference between a genuine need and a desire that'll be destructive is because we all realize that there's kind of this sacred space around decision-making of individuals now, right? Like you try and point something out that you see that might be a little destructive for them or for other people around them, and that's like, that's who they are that you have suddenly challenged. We see in children that distinction, but then we get into adulthood and suddenly we're expected to no longer need community and no longer need authority in order to sift all that stuff out. Philosophers describe our age as the age of expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, according to one commentator, suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. It's a drive both to be more like whatever you already are and also to live in a society by fully asserting who you are. The capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty and with the meaning of some of our basic rights. What that commentator is basically saying is, truth is no longer found outside of the individual with self-reflection helping us to understand how we fit in. Truth has become an internalized reality that is lived out of an identity that's just imposed on my life. Truth has become intrinsic rather than extrinsic. Expressive individualism is at the root of pop culture phrases like, you be you, just be yourself, be true to yourself. My truth is, or follow your heart, or find yourself. Like, I'll be totally honest, like people say that and I don't bat an eye at it, right? We're just used to it. It's like the compass on, or the, the needle on the moral compass now is, yeah, like, of course you can say that. And certainly there are innocent situations where you could throw out a phrase like that, but aren't there decisions that people have made around us where we haven't wanted to say that? And if that's the case, there are decisions that you have made that people around you have wanted to say out of love for you. This isn't new to 2022. In 2016, the Oxford Dictionary decided that the word of the year, this was their news release, after much discussion, debate, and research, the Oxford Dictionary's world of the year in 2016 is post-truth. Post-truth is an adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. We're, we're years into the development of this. That's why it feels so normal. And if we belong not to ourselves, but to a God who is over us, as Jesus taught and declared and invited us into as the foundation for real human living, we got to figure this out. Really simply, I think we need courage to stand on 
who Jesus says we are and what Jesus says love is toward one another and those around us. So that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking. What do we need to be faithful to follow Jesus in an age of expression? We need courage. We need courage. If we're not our own, but belong to God, we need courage to follow Jesus in an age of expression. Not the brazen courage to fight a culture war, but courage to believe and live from the truest reality in the universe. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. And second, we need courage to love people as though Jesus really is here. So, first point, we need courage in an age of expression because the Jesus we follow is invisible. We need courage in the age of expression because the Jesus we follow is invisible. A lot of times we'll use the word faith, right? Faith is fundamentally living as though what you cannot see is more true than what you can see. I think this phrase is compelling. Jesus is invisible because that's what it feels like, but it doesn't mean he's not there. Over 30 years ago, an author and speaker and theologian named Francis Schaeffer was traveling around the world, and he put his finger on something that troubled him deeply, and he thought was at the core of a lot of the dysfunction in the church in his day, around the globe. He said that the greatest problem he saw in young people then was that though they believed truths within Scripture, they didn't experience them in their everyday life. After being in ministry for the last 15 years, I can say yes and amen to that. That one of the deepest problems that we have as Christians in our moment is that we have minds filled with truth that are from Scripture and from well-meaning authors and friends and community. We don't feel their reality. Like, when was the last time Jesus, you were confident Jesus is here? Hopefully it was the worship set. Like you're singing praises to him, right? But I know for some of us, it's been a long time. And I know for all of us, it's what we long for. Like that's the very basics of what it means to be a Christian following Jesus in this world while we wait for the new world to come, is living in that tension. And we're committed to being a church and a body that does not settle for filling our minds with spiritual truths without pursuing the experience of those as our lived reality. And that's the offer of the Holy Spirit. That's why this is such a problem. When we don't feel what we believe to be true, Something is wrong, and it's not wrong with God. So let's reflect. Let's ask. As Christians, Jesus is supposed to be our lived reality, not a proponent of loving ideas. Diving into Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church of young Jesus followers in ancient Greece and uses a peculiar phrase um, in the scriptures we're reading. Did you notice in, in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, if then 
you have been raised with Christ. For the first two chapters of this letter, the Apostle Paul unpacked the beautiful difference Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection make not just for anyone who trusts him, but for the future of our whole cosmos. And as he unpacks all of that, do that this week. Read through the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians. It is so encouraging to see the cosmic scope of the effect of what Jesus did. Now he gets personal and says, if you have been raised with Christ, what we can tend to do in the church is read through passages like this really fast, presuming to know what they say without soaking in the radical nature of what that's actually saying. We might read it like this subconsciously. If you have been saved because Jesus died and rose and paid for your sins, as though Jesus did something 2,000 years ago historically so that you could psychologically be at peace with yourself, that's not what he's saying. That's a part of it. What Paul is saying is nothing less than for those who have experienced, seen, trusted, are committed to following Jesus, your whole existence is utterly different. Jesus took on human flesh, not just to atone for our sins and our wrongs and our failings and heal our brokenness. He, he took on human flesh to bring the life of God who is holy into the world that is broken, that any broken person who trusts him can be connected and plugged into the reality of the life of God here on earth. Paul means what he's saying in the simple uh, literal reading of that passage. If you trust Jesus, if you've seen his glory and you've said, he's worth following, he knows what he's talking about, you are in him. He is in you. Heaven is bridged into earth through his Holy Spirit in you. You are not alone. You have Jesus. You have been raised to a new life here and now. It should change everything. But the difficulty comes when we realize we still need to live our daily life. And it's invisible. But that's what faith is. That's why the scriptures complete, are trying to compel us to see the, the cosmic reality of Jesus being alive and his spirit working here and now. And so many people in this room could testify, though he is invisible, he is real. And when we take any small step to, to go by what we know to be true by faith rather than what our eyes can see, instantly he shows himself faithful and powerful to carry us. Jesus is moving in our world, awakening people to his presence and power by opening our eyes through the gospel, the good news. The Son of God did something in real human history so people would forever be changed by it. To have become a Christian is to be transported into the very reality of God's presence here on earth. Nothing less. 
We won't settle for anything less. New Testament authors knew that this would be the struggle of Jesus followers. In 1 Peter, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, Peter writes to disciples like right after when Jesus had ascended back to heaven, and he said, though you have not seen him, you love him. They knew that this is the game. Jesus himself knew that this would how, how it would work. In John 16, he says, a little while, and you will see me no longer, and then a little while, and you will see me. He wasn't talking about his 40 days on earth after his resurrection. He was talking about the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, that through him, we would see the glory of Jesus in our everyday life. So don't be surprised when it feels scary to live by faith. We're following a Jesus who is invisible, but that does not make him not real. We need courage in this age of expression because truth as Christians is not primarily an internal realization, but an external receiving. You are in Jesus now. You are who he says you are. He has given you clear truths to live by so that you would be transformed and shaped, just like parenting is shaping human beings, little humans, so too the Holy Spirit of the very hands of God, shaping us to become more and more like Jesus, that Jesus himself more and more could flow through us to bless the world. So we need courage for faith to live like that. That's why Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. we gotta, we got to make a little bit of a trajectory adjustment to understand the poignancy of what Paul's saying there. Their, their day, the first century AD, they looked up and they saw the heavens. They didn't have huge telescopes to be able to see that the universe is just ever expanding and way far out there. They had this mental map that said the gods are up there and they're connected in with the world here. And so as we interact with them up here, our everyday here changes. So when Paul is saying, set your minds on things that are above, what he's not saying is, you should just become so detached from the desires of everyday life and earthly living, become a monk, go out to a monastery, and then just seek to memorize the whole Bible and pray all day. It's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. We live in a world where we have come to realize just how expansive our universe is. So when we hear, set your minds on things that are above, we imagine heaven is distant and disconnected from our everyday life, okay? We need to make a, a bit of an adjustment in order to be able to say, set your minds on things that are above. We might be able to make a little bit of an adjustment to say, set your minds on the, the kingdom of heaven that is here and now. Not so much as a location, but as a dimension behind our seen reality. Because as we live into the kingdom of God and the teachings of Jesus, we discover heaven is here and now. Just as they said, when I make a sacrifice here, the God up there changes my everyday life. As we're following Jesus, our everyday life changes. Does that make sense? 
We're not trying to become disembodied, but to live out our faith here and now. And we need courage for that because we can't see it. Paul says, though, that our light or that we are to seek things where Christ is, the very presence of God. If you take nothing less than this verse, you are raised with God, with Jesus, and you have access to the presence of God in your everyday life. And it changes your reality. You see, if we're honest, all of us actually have faith in someone's expertise. It just depends on who we're listening to. You know, a lot of you are at UCLA, and you're hearing all sorts of truth claims posited to you. You ought to live like this because this is true. You're all sitting in chairs because you've learned that chairs are normally stable when they have four legs. Like, we all live with this presumption of faith. But then we hear Jesus, and we begin to question, is he worth trusting? He's worth trusting, friends. Trusting in ourselves, actually, has led to so much of the dysfunction that we experience. We needed to look no further than the mental health pandemic that is awry in our age to realize we do not have this thing figured out being thriving human beings. And we can be honest about that, but it should open us up to say, who does know? Jesus does. Jesus does. Um, reality is what you run into when you're wrong. Reality is what you run into when you're wrong. That's helpful because as we take steps of faith, what we'll start to see as we live by what we can't see is that Jesus' word is true. So, um, when Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, the invitation to you and me is to say, where do I want my heart to be? Put my money there. And if we'll take a step of faith, which is to put our money where we want our heart to be, we'll see the truth of his words. And so if we're caught up in the anxieties of our financial situation, oftentimes, I know there are real stressful situations where poverty is a real thing, but for many of us in this context, it's not something that we need to wrestle with as much as we feel. Truthfully, it's because we placed all of our money and stuff around us and in a secure bank account and in investments and in a comfortable life. And so as the world starts to threaten that, our heart is there. I'll never forget when I started giving as a young Christian based on percentage by faith where I felt it, I started realizing I'm giving enough up every month that I could like buy an iPad. And I like felt the cost of what I was giving. It was sacrificial. I felt it. I saw the opportunities that I couldn't have. Guess what? I stopped worrying about money so much. Jesus knows reality better than you and better than me. If we obey him and his word, we'll find out he knows what he's talking about. That should be really encouraging because if that disconnect is real that we said in the beginning, we believe certain truths, but they don't feel real to us. Obedience is a simple way for Jesus to start feeling more real to your lived experience. It will not be safe. Jesus is not safe. 
but he's good and faithful, and he can totally transform your life. Not just with spiritual good news, but with a new way of being human. You'll bump into the reality that Jesus knows what he is talking about. So, what kind of courage, what kind of courage can we, can we look to or try and implement this week to follow this Jesus who is invisible? If we don't belong to ourselves, but belong to God, and we need to, to, to strive for courage to follow him well, what can that look like? Um, first, courage to face the real Jesus. What do I mean by that? We're immersed in a world, we already said, of, of, of seeking uh, truth internally. And a subtle way that fills itself out in the church is we start taking what we like about who Jesus is and then adding to him other things that we want and removing the things that we don't like. And so, yes, I love his, his love and his acceptance of all people and his mercy, but I do not like his honesty about where sin leads to destruction. So I'm going I'm to kind of set that aside and I'll tell myself I'm not like ignoring it. I'll just deal with it later, but I'll live with that. And then I'll start to apply, you know, Jesus's love for all people and just say people can choose whatever they want. And at the end of the, at the, end of the day, everyone's just going to end up in the same place anyway. It doesn't matter. And pretty soon Jesus stops confronting us at all because we've made him into our own image. We need courage to face the real Jesus and just be okay feeling uncomfortable. Like that's what discipleship is about. That's what growing in our faith is about, is running into more of Jesus and seeing, what do I do with that? And having a committed community in the church to say, yeah, we ran into that. Here's what not to do, and here's what not to do, and here's the nuance of your life and how that probably could work its way out. We need courage to face the real Jesus. If Jesus hasn't offended you for a while, it's probably because you're not looking at the real one. We need courage, though, also, I alluded to this, to be committed to obedience. We need courage to be committed to obeying what we hear and see in Jesus. I think this, this probably feels initially like guilt, and I hope that by the end of these couple minutes, it feels like glorious invitation. All of us, myself included, are keenly aware of the areas in our life where we've gotten comfortable with ignoring, compromising, disobeying directly things we know to be true in Scripture. The challenge in being a Christian in our day and being a church in our day is we are immersed in a kind of world where it's thought to be permissible that you could say you believe in something deep down inside of you, but not have it totally shape the way that you live. For most of the last 5,000 years, this statement, being committed to obedience, hasn't even needed to be expressed. Because it's been assumed if you believe in Jesus, you're committed to submitting to his lordship. If you believe God, 
You're living with God. You're obeying God. But now it needs to be stated to say that we have faith includes the intent to fully obey. Now, intent doesn't always match up with what actually happens. That's where the gift of repentance and knowing Jesus is merciful. He always receives us back in our failings and sins. But we need to deal with what we intend to do internally. That's why the psalmist says, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your word. I read that and I wonder, could I stand up in front of people or record for people to read throughout history and say, God, you're what I need. I promise I'll obey you. I want to encourage you that taking that simple step of surrender to say, whatever you show me, Jesus, I will do my absolute best to obey it. I intend to obey you even if it's costly, fully realizing our brokenness and failings. Is an invitation you do not realize you've been missing out on. Here's something that we see about God in Scripture. He goes where he's wanted. God shows up where he is wanted. We see it in the life of Jesus. He would leave towns where they rejected him. He would stay in towns where he was wanted. We see it in God in the Old Testament, how when he was taken and obeyed by Israel, he was there and his presence was blessing them. But the minute that they said, no, God, we're not going to obey you, he left. God goes where he is wanted. And so a fundamental part of being a Christian is cultivating the sense of desire for more of him to know him, and a component of that is setting our will on, God, I will obey you as best I can, fully. And if God pours himself out where he is wanted, you can rest assured that if you will simply take that step of surrender to say nothing in my life is off the table, I will trust you that he will show up. What we've seen his character, it's who he's shown himself to be. And if you're here and you would not consider yourself a Christian, that's the invitation to you. To just turn to see and look and seriously consider if Jesus is who he says he is, if he has fundamentally changed the course of history and is somehow here and present, you have access to him. Would you receive him? Would you say, okay, if this is true, help me to know it and experience it, and spirit always enters in to places like that. We would love to walk with you through that process and learn how to pray and listen to God and study the scriptures and um, be a part of community. You can come up to me afterwards. You can go to the prayer team and just say, hey, like I want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, and we we are so eager to help. But this is what it's about. We need courage in this moment right now because we need to live by faith. And it has become normal as Christians in the church to be Christians and not walk with intent to follow God 
and the invisible. It takes courage. But secondly, we need courage because in our culture, we need to love, and love requires truth. Culture has said truth is found internally and no one can speak to it. We know that, that truth is found externally. And so to really love people, we need courage. Anyone feel this? Like actually come alongside someone and do what you know is most loving for them is going to be disruptive to their emotions and disruptive to your relationship? It takes courage. Like just totally honest, when I've tried to come alongside of some people in the history of our church, like this is, this is where we've gotten to. People stop talking to me, and it wasn't me coming out angry, you know, fire and brimstone. It was saying, hey, there seems to be something here. Can we talk about this? And the defenses go up, and the accusation, you're not a safe person, comes out. We need courage because we're called by Jesus to love. It's a non-negotiable. And in our day, that means courage. So, what does it mean to love people? We have the example in Jesus. Jesus is himself love incarnate. What do we see in Jesus? Jesus showed us that love is compassionate. Love is compassionate. We need courage to love because Jesus is love, and his mission is to invade the lives of people with his love, to confront hate with love, darkness with light, and division with reconciliation. But in our age, real love is an impossibility with the given circumstances. We need compassion to draw near to people and not be repulsed or in our own being offended. Don't mistake the fact that you have been shaped by this culture too that relationships will be hard and costly. Compassion for the other is the only way we can draw near through pain. But Jesus had broken, hurting people, flocked to him in droves, and he didn't reject them. He was full of mercy to touch the untouchable and love the unlovely. If safety is the security to know you will not be kicked out and spat upon for being honest and real, Jesus is the safest person in the universe. And that stands today. So what does compassion look like for us, maybe? Um, the first one is, if we have Jesus, we should be the most unoffendable friends that people have. <laughs> to, to be a Christian is to believe the gospel, and the gospel says, we are so messed up and hopeless that the Son of God who created us in the beginning had to come take on the inconvenience of human flesh, suffer and die to bring us back to God. What could be more offensive to us than that? So when someone says, hey, the way that you speak to me, like the tone, it feels like there are assumptions, you're just like mean sometimes. Even when they're like not kind about their critiques of us, we should be able to say, oh, I'm kind of jarred by that, but okay, like I want to listen. I'm just not surprised by my own brokenness anymore. You need that for compassion. People will hurt you. Jesus was hurt by people. We ought to be unoffendable. But secondly, we also ought to be committed. We ought to be the most committed friends that people have. Jesus didn't just come down, die for us to make a way and leave. 
Jesus came down to earth to make a covenant promise to people, to say, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And I know that human relationships are, oh, they're a mess. They're the biggest source of joy and the biggest source of pain. So you got to hear this with a little bit of nuance. But we should have as our norm commitment to friends over ourselves. That's like just straight up New Testament. Like authors literally say, consider the needs of others more than yourselves. Do nothing to please yourself, Romans 15 says, but only as, as such is good for your neighbor. Like that, there's commitment in that, right? The reason that we can be that committed to people is because Jesus is that committed to us. As we feel depleted, we have resource in him beyond our natural capacity that we could rely on him. So we could be courageously compassionate friends to people, to one another, to people around us, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family. But love doesn't stop at compassion. Love is truthful. Love needs truth. Um, we're told in our moment, love equates to affirmation. You love me if you affirm and bless my every decision that is an expression of this little heart that I have inside of me where I really reside. Um, if truth really is individual and internal, we have no alternative. We're, that, you shouldn't even be here. I have nothing to offer you because the truth is in you and you just got to discover it. But if that's not the case, then love requires us helping people to see the truth of our reality regardless of what they think or feel. So, love certainly can contain the encouragement and affirmation of people but love isn't the same thing exactly. Real love may mean we vocally disapprove of someone's decision or feelings or interpretation of the truth. It might actually be the opposite of real love to affirm someone. Um, Van Jones, commentator, liberal commentator on politics, I value the way that he thinks about things. Um, he talked about safe spaces in university contexts, right? Safe spaces, this, this broad idea about what it means if everyone is to express who they are, we need to create environments where people can freely express who they are. There is a way in which that can be a good thing and a helpful thing. We don't want to need to hide who we are, but there's a way where it can become dark and not helpful. He has helpful analysis for us. He says, there are two ideas about safe spaces. One is very good and one is a terrible idea. The idea of being physically safe on a campus, remember he was speaking to a university similar to our context. Um, the idea of being physically safe on a campus, not being subjected to sexual harassment, physical abuse, being targeted specifically, personally, or for some kind of hate speech, um, racism, whatever. I am perfectly fine with that kind of safe space. But there's another view that is now, I think, ascendant, which I think is just a horrible view. 
which is that I need to be safe ideologically. I need to be safe emotionally. I just need to feel good all the time. And if someone says something that I don't like, that's a problem for everybody else, including the administration, speaking on a college, college campus. I think that's a terrible idea for the wrong reason. I don't want you to be safe ideologically. I don't want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. That's different. I'm not going to pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity. I'm not going to take all the weights out of the gym. That's the whole point of the gym. This is the gym. You can't live on a campus where people say stuff you don't like. And these people can't fire you. They can't arrest you. They can't beat you up. They can't say stuff you don't like. They can just say stuff you don't like. And you get to say stuff back. And this you cannot bear. He ends it by saying, this is ridiculous, liberals. You are creating a kind of liberalism that the minute it crosses the street into the real world, it's not just useless, but obnoxious and dangerous. I want you to be offended every single day on this campus. I want you to be deeply aggrieved and offended and upset and then learn how to speak back because that's what we really need from you. Now there's some stuff in there that could be nuanced, right? Like, but there is deep, valuable wisdom. We need to know what we mean when we want safety. We want to be able to be honest and vulnerable and not rejected or criticized or shamed. Yes and amen. But we need to have a kind of safety that's actually truthful so it can actually be loving. So simply, I wonder, as Christians, most of us in this room, one of the ways that we learn this is by practicing it together in community. So when was the last time you were able to come alongside someone and say something they didn't like? That kicked up emotion. If we aren't doing it with each other, I can promise you this. We will not be doing it out in the world. But I can assure you of this too. It is better to be rejected by a few and have deeply loving relationships with many than it is to be superficially loving in relationships with all. Some of you are hungering for depth and you've been formed in this kind of way, wondering where the depth is. This is where the depth comes in, where we can be real with each other and grace and mercy covers us so that we're safe and we're committed, and we're compassionate, and we're saying, we're gonna figure this out together. But we're not settling for just anything. If Jesus is here, we can, we can be transformed. We have new life to have. Couple of applications. Love requires us to be willing to wound people. Love requires us to be willing to wound people. Again, this is straight up Bible. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I'm going to say that again. The book of Proverbs says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Don't be so quick to judge 
whether it hurts or feels good with what it means about that friend. You might have a really faithful friend who says something hard that feels like a wound, and you might have an enemy that's saying something to pat you on the back, and they don't care at all about where you end up. We need to help when people that we see are making self-destructive or other destructive decisions. We must compassionately be truthful with them. Here's a simple example. Coming alongside saying, hey, can I share something with you? I've reflected for a while. I've actually prayed to just try and make the best to make sure that my motives are right before sharing this with you. I also want you to know that I'm committed to you as a friend. Like, sharing this doesn't mean that I'm going anywhere. I have expectations over you. But I think it's something that I'm supposed to say in love to you. Like, in what world would we not say, please tell me? <laughs> I need that. We need to be willing to wound people in love. Some of you are on the opposite end of the spectrum. You walk around and bludgeon people with truth. And you need to hear the opposite thing. I just don't have time for that right now. Be careful. Be compassionate. Hear the compassion side, right? So we need to be willing to wound people. Second piece, um, kind of a caveat in that. Uh, Self-care must be self-aware. I've seen a lot of Christians make decisions under the guise of self-care, which actually is removing them from obedience to Jesus, rootedness in community. Self-care must be self-aware. If you know that your limitations produce a kind of moment in your life where you need more from Jesus and you need healing or whatever it might be, walk that out in community. Don't just throw the stamp of self-care over everything. It is a good thing. It's a necessary thing, actually, in our moment to grow in self-awareness. A lot of us have emotions and trauma and pain under the surface that we haven't unpacked. It's actually the root cause of a lot of our sin that we're struggling with. You should dive into that. But we can't baptize our every decision under the banner of self-care. Um, and then lastly, we need courage to pray with people who don't believe what we believe. I think this is one of the core pieces to us seeing a wave of revival poured out in our city because if Jesus is really alive, if he is really with us, we go as priests of the living God to intercede with people and pray over people regardless of what they believe in hopes that they experience the living Jesus before they necessarily believe in the living Jesus. Give you an example. Um, this takes courage. I was talking with a, a member of our church out in front of my apartment building. My neighbor comes home, elderly old lady. She comes up. I offer to help her up our stairs. She says, oh, I don't know. It's okay. And then she, she goes like this. Whoa, what's going on? Are you okay? She talks about all these medical problems that she's having. She just gets these dizzy spells. She's an elderly lady. So I feel what I think is the Holy Spirit in me saying, uh, you should pray for healing for her. She's not a Christian. I've, I resist. I'm like, no, I don't got time. I got to go back inside. And like all the me starts coming out. And in God's grace, was able to say, friend, can we pray for you? Other member of our church says, yeah, let's do that. We put a hand on her shoulder. We pray for her. Tears are coming down her face after we're done. I don't know if she's healed or not. She was moved. And I'm trusting Jesus. 
so much of the pain and difficulty out there could at least be used by God to direct their hope outside of this world and outside of themselves if we just pray. Let's just have the courage to be willing to pray with people and trust the Lord with the results. All right. We don't talk about this because I presume we're all just ready to be courageous. Like, I feel fear when I go out into the world and know I'm an ambassador of Jesus. I'm trying to live by faith in a world that does not agree with me. But the last thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is that we can be comforted that we are safe in our faith. Verse 3 says, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that what we're afraid of? We're afraid of the thousand little deaths that we can feel going out into the world when we try and walk by faith and love other people. The good news of being tied to Jesus is that your death happened in his death. Regardless of what you feel today, regardless of what you will feel tomorrow, regardless of what consequences might arise from your best attempts to walk by faith, you have the assurance of the living God that it will be used to bring you more of his life, whether in this one or through ultimately when you die or Jesus returns in the life to come. It's already happened. The life we think we want might be found in a surprising place of sacrifice. But if we're in Jesus, it's in his hands. So, if we belong to God, let's strive to live courageous by faith and to love those outside of our walls and one another in our walls courageously in love. Do we want that? Jesus, um, help us to live this out. Um, courage is intimidating because we realize uh, it requires discomfort and fear for it to be courage at all. And would you help us to see that you are trustworthy? Help us to do our part by your power, though we might not feel it. And Holy Spirit, I pray that this time next week we would have seen uh, Jesus, show up all over the place. We need your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.